Hi, you're about to listen to episode seven of the podcast. 1912 was a really important year. For progressives, it was the year that a century-long agenda was formalized as the party platform of the Bull Moose Party. It served as something of a checklist of legislative achievements that we're still working through today. And the man that spearheaded this new agenda and a new political party? Theodore Roosevelt. What are some of the progressive victories Teddy never lived to see? What is yet to be accomplished? If TR were alive today, what are some new progressive ideas he might champion? In this episode, we discuss anarchists, World War I, an automatic minimum wage, free energy, weed, paid family leave, and Eddie calls me a hippie. This is Robot F. Kennedy. So Jason Kander, uh, he's, he used to be the Secretary of State for the state of Missouri, I think. Um, he's a kind of rising star in the Democratic Party. He tweeted today, 2017 isn't about Trump. It's about regular people standing up to Trump. This is the birth of a new progressive era in American history. I thought that was interesting. but It also made me think about the old progressive era. So Lay it on me, buddy. The progressives were a political movement in the 19, early 1900s, stretching into the 1920s. And it was largely an urban movement, right? But it kind of transcended political party. Like there were progressive wings of both the Republican and Democratic Party. So quick pushback on that. Did it transcend parties or or was that an instance of dealignment like we talked about before? Yeah, I think that that is exactly true. Like but, like was was the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, let's say Republican progressives, the death knell of Lincoln Republicanism. Yes. And was the Woodrow Wilson progressive Democrats the beginning of the New Deal Roosevelt progressive party? Well, no, I think that the I think that the progressive party is, is the progressive movement and the political the party system that goes along with it is right is nestled right in between the uh, post Civil War party alignment and then and then we get that lasts until basically 1900 and then we get this you know the progressives and then in the 1930s late 1920s and early 1930s we move into the New Deal. Um, party system. Let, I want to talk about the progressives, and and I know you're a huge fan of Teddy Roosevelt, who's kind of the standard bearer, who was the standard bearer of the progressive movement. He was a really remarkable person, um, <laughs> but it's been, I've been evolving on that. Um, I heard someone describe Teddy Roosevelt as every little boy's favorite president, uh huh, which is true, and also a little bit of a put down, uh huh. And I just think as I've evolved both politically and, and emotionally, I think I think there was a lot that was kind of immature about Teddy Roosevelt. Sure. He had kind of a shoot him up um, yeah. cowboy attitude about some things. And it ended up breaking his heart, right? Like he, his mm-hmm. two of his sons died in combat. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah. I think he did a lot of tremendous things in his life. He's such an interesting character. He's so colorful. Um, his life is so interesting. And like a mixture of privilege and tragedy. Oh, yeah. I was going to give just like a tiny, the tiniest of bios, which is that he yeah. came from a wealthy family in uh, Long Island, New York. But uh, he was a sickly kid. There's that famous picture of him watching, you know, as a sickly kid, watching through the window as Lincoln's funeral procession yeah. passed by. Spent a lot of time in the outdoors kind of to 
rehabilitate his health, right? Developed a love of the outdoors, but then went on to be a rough rider in the Spanish-American War. Uh, was mayor of New York or governor of New York or both? Governor of New York. Governor of New, New York. Uh, commissioner of the New York Police Department. Oh, Wow. And from there, through all of these successes, also the youngest, uh, the youngest speaker of the New York State Assembly. Wow! At the age of twenty-three years old. But again, came from a very wealthy family. Always on the side of progressive politics, and he was never easy to pigeonhole in Republican machine politics. Like, for example, he wrote a thesis either, I think it was either when he was a senior at Harvard, or. It, was a maybe a paper or an op-ed he wrote when he was the youngest mm-hmm. speaker of the New York State House at the age of 23, like I said before. And he was advocating for women's suffrage in the 1890s yeah. and was laughed out of the room, was just not taken seriously. He had a lot of ideas that did not fit well. Well, the women's suffrage was already granted at this point in Idaho and I think New Zealand, which I know is not part of the United States, but it's like, it wasn't a crazy, wasn't... Fun fact, New Zealand made a river a person, so maybe New Zealand is just the... <laughs> right, on uh, the forefront. On the forefront. Uh, he was nominated uh, and became vice president, and then after the assassination of William McKinley, he became president in 1901. He became, he was elected in his own right in 1904, so he served almost two terms, but not quite two terms, decided not to run for re-election in 1908, and Taft, he basically deemed uh, William Howard Taft. He was wildly popular yeah, while president, and basically handpicked his successor. Which was Taft, and then almost immediately was uh, dissatisfied with the direction that Taft was going, and ran for election again for what would have been a third term in 1912 under, they were called the Progressive Party, right? Yep. And, and their animal was the bull moose. In I mean, he, it was really a kind of cult of personality around him. Like he was the leader of of the party, but it was a loosely connected party. Anyway, he ran for election and lost. And we've also talked about this. He was the spoiler in that election, handing it to the Democrat Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, even though Wilson did not win a majority of, of the popular vote. Teddy Roosevelt and the Bull Moose Party basically wrote the playbook for progressive politics to this day. And we've spent the last hundred years enacting this playbook and we're not even done yet. So we want to go through and look at what that platform was and pick it apart, talk about stuff that has been achieved, stuff that hasn't yet been achieved, but might be achieved in the near future, and then talk about some big holes. I'm just excited about TR, the old lion. Do you know when he died, his kids just telegrammed each other, the old lion is dead, and they all knew they all knew what that meant. That's that's great. Do you know Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Delano Roosevelt are the only presidents of the United States that are confirmed to have tattoos on their bodies? Really? And those tattoos are a family crest that they had tattooed to their bodies. They have the same family crest? Yep. Wow. So they came from two branches of the family, right? Hyde Park. Ro- Teddy Roosevelt is from Oyster Bay, who, and they were Republicans. Franklin Roosevelt is from Hyde Park, and they were Democrats. Exactly. But their politics are closer. Can we say another funny thing? Sure. FDR was Teddy Roosevelt's fifth cousin. Mm-hmm. Eleanor Roosevelt's maiden name is Eleanor Roosevelt. Right, yeah. And her They're uncle. They're also fifth cousins. Yeah, and Eleanor's uncle. No, Eleanor's father was Teddy Roosevelt's alcoholic brother that died at a young age. 
And Eleanor Roosevelt was basically raised by Teddy Roosevelt and his family. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah, I knew that she was already a Roosevelt. Also, like, what not... are you thinking, guys? Just make, you gotta have more people. Like, when you're marrying somebody, when you're marrying somebody, and your maiden name is the same as your married name, that's a sign. Yeah, it's a deal breaker. All right, so I have here the Progressive Party platform of 1912. We don't have to read it exactly, but one of the things is direct primaries for the nomination of state and national officers. Check, right? Big deal. We got that. The Progressive Party, believing that no people can justify claim to be a true democracy, which denies political rights on account of blah, blah, blah. Women's suffrage. Big deal. Check. We got that. 1920, that went through? 1918? Yeah. There are three amendments of the Constitution that are called the Progressive Amendments. Uh, the 17th Amendment, which is the direct election of senators. The 18th Amendment, which is prohibition. And the 19th Amendment, which is women's suffrage. And yeah, that was ratified in 1919. I mean, those are huge, yeah, huge deals. And in 1912, the Bull Moose Party was the first major political party that called for yeah. these as part of their party platform. And within eight years, to show you, give you an idea of how big of a movement that was, right? right. You think of uh, the Obama movement or the Trump movement or the, even the Reagan revolution, right? None of those waves led to three constitutional amendments within eight years. Yeah. Registration of lobbyists. Check. We have that. Okay, here's one that I, that I don't agree with. When a court determines that a law is unconstitutional, it would then go immediately to a referendum. I agree with you. I don't, I don't think we're, I think we can look to Turkey this week and see how referenda are not necessarily always a good thing, particularly when overturning judicial orders or congressional laws. So I don't really know about the referendum in Turkey. Can you give me the two-minute or less. So I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding of it is that the, the the Turkish referendum that just occurred basically removed a lot of the separation of powers in Turkey's government, mm -hmm. and it increased uh, it increased a lot of unilateral power over the presidency of Turkey, which President Erdogan has been showing increasing authoritarian leanings. Right. Also interesting, based on our prior conversations, they increased the number of seats in their legislature. Mm -hmm which gave more opportunities for a, a kind of increased majority of the president's party so that further oh, wow. reforms could be pushed through. To rubber stamp his. Exactly, to rubber stamp uh, whatever he wanted to do. Another interesting thing is that you're seeing a replay of the of Brexit and of the, the 2016 American election where you have these big cities, these big cities with huge populations that are kind of being narrowly outvoted by rural conservative Oh, really? Um, voters, yeah. And um, huge protests occurring in, in the major cities. I think Ankara and Istanbul and a couple of the other big cities are having huge protests. So I, I'm generally not a huge fan of referenda. I think the state of California, like, I don't know if you've noticed our ballot The ballot books, initiatives? Our ballot books growing and growing over time mm -hmm. to become uh, encyclopedic. I, I think there's a place... Actually, no, I, I don't know if I do think there's a place for direct referenda, for, at least for things that are permanent changes to things like the Constitution of a... Hmm. So a referendum is when you go to the voters to basically pass a law. Yeah. And in California, we do it a lot for raising taxes, that the representatives don't want to be on the hook 
maybe this is overly cynical, but they don't want to be on the hook for raising property taxes or um, sales tax. So they put it to a referendum and they'll explain, you know, the whoever writes the referendum explains why we need to do that. And then it's up to the voters. And I feel like in most cases we do raise the taxes. Yeah. I think though, it's more like one, do your job and Mm -hmm. two to the politicians. Right. And two, it's the politician's job and the technocrat's job and the bureaucrat's jobs to like be on top of all the nuances and little Mm -hmm. subtleties of every single corner of the government. And I don't know everything about right. the implications of a sales tax increase or a, an amendment to the California state, California state constitution. And as these ballot initiatives get added, I try to do the work of understanding so that I can vote in an informed manner. But A, that's not scalable. B, I know I put more time into it than most people do. And that's not a knock against most people. People's lives are busy. And I just think that's a really kind of schizophrenic way of making policy. Yeah. All right. Here's one that I'm not sure where you fall on it. The Progressive Party platform. Go. The prohibition of child labor. <laughs> I feel pretty strongly that children um, do not have the... You're joking, right? Yeah, of course. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> effective legislation looking to the prevention of industrial accidents, occupational diseases, overwork, involuntary unemployment, and other injurious in- effects incident to modern industry. Workers count. Workers' comp, but also workplace safety. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is how, how many of these things are New Deal policies, right? We've got, right. I don't mean to jump ahead, but uh, Social Security is part of the progressive mm-hmm. platform of 1912. National health care is something that we haven't even done yet. Mm-hmm. I think that's something people overlook all the time. Like the Affordable Care Act of 2010. It's 100 years late. And it's not even universal mm-hmm. health care. Right. Right, it's a dramatic expansion of health services for American citizens, but could it's you, not universal health care. Could you imagine what health care would look like in this country, and probably how much cheaper it would be if they had, if if we did it in the right order? Basically, if we got universal health care before we got for-profit insurance companies, yeah, it would be so much cheaper. Right? Do you know? Yeah, trillions of dollars. Like, the thing I get into lots of arguments with. With, pe- with conservative family members about is uh, they say, well, uh, private companies are more efficient and they're more competitive and um, they're, they're better at administering these services. My counterpoint to that is that one, that may be true if these insurance companies are in competitive areas. Mm-hmm. But there are many places where there's one insurance provider in an entire state. That's not competitive. They can set prices. They can negotiate pretty unilaterally. So competition, like free market competition is not in practice effectively uh, playing out. Mm -hmm. But secondly, the question becomes, I think one of the unspoken motives for a lot of conservatives is if there is a dollar of revenue generated, if a dollar's changing hands, I'm more comfortable with that dollar going from Eddie to a corporation Mm -hmm. that's held that whose stock is held by shareholders Mm -hmm. And whose profits are going to someone, and I don't care if it's the CEO of the health insurance company or if it's the shareholders of the health insurance company, versus a dollar of Eddie's money going to the federal government to administer the same services. Furthermore, that first, like that first sentiment, often makes one blind to the economic reality that it is not one dollar going from Eddie to an insurance company versus one dollar going from Eddie to a 
to the federal government. Right. It's an insurance company finding mechanisms, capitalistic mechanisms by which to extract not one, but five or 10 or $20 right. of Eddie's money that a not profit oriented government service would potentially spend $1 on. And let's not forget that then that same insurance company that has found a way to get $10 from me is also getting 50 cents from the government. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I mean, it's nice work if you can get it, Yeah, absolutely. I want to read a quote from a Teddy Roosevelt speech that he gave in 1910. It's called the New Nationalism Speech. He says, We need to enforce better sanitary conditions for our workers and to extend the use of safety appliances for our workers in industry and commerce, both within and between the states. The reason why I want to come back to regulations, I agree with everything that you said about health care, and I feel like that's a bigger conversation, but I want to talk about this because here we are, 105 years after he ran for president as a progressive, 107 years after he delivered this speech. And we have in the White House an administration that is intent on removing regulations. And this is a conversation I get into with my dad all the time. My dad's point of view is like, I'm going to vote for the candidate who wants fewer regulations because regulations, you know, get in the way of business. Regulations kill jobs. And I have such trouble with this because regulations are protecting workers or protecting consumers, right? I completely agree. I think this is an example of both of our fathers coming of age in a time that was more regulated than today, and they got the idea frozen in their brains, regulation Mm -hmm. equals bad. Mm -hmm. And we live in a time that is much less regulated than the 1970s and early 1980s. Mm -hmm. We we talked about this. I think it got cut from a previous podcast, but the 1970s, and the early 1980s were a period of heavy regulation. Right. But by by almost any measure, there are more regulations now than there were then. There's a name for like the like all the regulations are basically printed and they determine the number of regulations by how many pages that is, you know. Right. What I'm reacting to I think is that it's 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 reductive and it's deceptive, right? Regulations as a rule are not bad. Mhm. I don't want lead in my water. Mm-hmm. I don't want my children to get asthma from diesel smoke mm-hmm. um, that they breathe in when they play on the street. I don't want financial advisors to be able to take my money and do things with it that makes them money and not me, mm-hmm. right? But I do believe that there can be a state of overregulation. I just don't agree that we currently live in a state of <laughs> overregulation. Furthermore, it's different on a case-by-case basis from industry to industry. Right. So... Here's a regulation from the healthcare industry. The HIPAA Act prevents um, insurance companies and medical providers from sharing my private information for uh, with advertisers, um, with employers, etc. I really believe in that regulation. Yeah. If I saved, if my health insurance could be decreased by $5 a month, if that regulation was removed, would I trade that $5 for the ability for United Healthcare to sell my information to uh, an, an advertising company or to prevent me from getting a job uh, if I have some health condition? No, like some regulations are good. So I just flatly reject the regulation yeah, equals bad. I, I agree. And when I brought this up to my dad, he I said, oh, so you, you, know, you don't like the Clean Water Act or, you know. You think that they should still be spraying DDT on kids so that they can avoid mosquito bites? And he was like, well, no, those are good regulations. And it's like, you can't you can't just say they're good because they worked. Like, they all regulations are intended to work. And yeah, maybe there are some around the edges that, that are an overreach, but they're protecting consumers and employees. 
I don't see how you can be against... I really have such a tough time understanding how you can be against protecting Americans. Yeah, you're going to get no argument out of me on that. I mean, like, let's go to some other things. So yeah. I just want to run through really quickly, Great. like, the New Deal stuff, right? You've got national health did not come to pass mm-hmm. under the New Deal. We're still fighting for that. Social Security accomplished by Franklin Roosevelt. Strong protections for labor unions to organize strikes. Mm-hmm. Minimum wage. An eight-hour workday. Mm-hmm. An eight-hour workday. Right? That's been codified into our entire uh, system. Farm relief. Securities and Exchange Commission. Or the formation of a Securities and Exchange Commission. Workers' comp. Inheritance tax. Right. These are huge. These are New Deal cornerstones. A lot of people don't realize that those ideas pre-existed the New Deal and had been bouncing around for a while. So an inheritance tax or an estate tax is... That was... Teddy Roosevelt? Yeah. So a Republican... That was the progressives. But a former Republican was pushing for the idea of an estate tax. Yes, but Eddie, to keep you honest, I want to remind you... <laughs> right, I know. Point, that, ...that it is disingenuous for us to compare Republicans in 1900 to Republicans in 2017 as an apples-to-apples comparison. Yeah, that is true, but the Republicans were the party of biz- big business even then. You're absolutely right. But you're right. It is... Dis- I mean, Teddy Roosevelt is not George W. Bush then... It's disingenuous for me to compare them. But what's interesting, too, is I think you see the dealignment happening there, right? right? Taft was all about big business. McKinley was all about big business. Teddy Roosevelt made his name by trust busting, right? Okay, I got to push back there. He, he accidentally became president, right? The vice president was, what's the quote? Uh, there's a Hoover quote or something. The vice president is uh, um, about as valuable as a bucket of warm spit. Right. Teddy Roosevelt was causing enough problems for the Republican Party establishment in the state of New York in the late 1800s that they put him in. They nominated him for the vice presidency to Mm -hmm. shut him up and to hide him, like to put him away. And if McKinley had never been assassinated, Teddy Roosevelt would have never been elected president. Right. And the only reason, like it's a it's the fluke of an assassin's bullet. Was it Leon Chalgosh, the anarchist that shot? I believe so. Yeah. McKinley. Is the fluke of an anarchist bullet and your aforementioned cult of personality around Teddy Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a household name. Right. Fucking teddy bears are named after <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt. Right. Like, this guy was, uh, personality-wise, like an Obama or a Trump in terms of just the the name recognition. Right. The people that agreed with him loved him and would have followed him to the end of the world. And so he he's an outlier, I think. He's an outlier president. It is incredible all of the things that came to pass, but my frustration is that here we are and there is pushback against these things that, in my opinion, should be like we should we should have we we did them we passed these laws or amendments and let's move on to bigger things. We shouldn't still be arguing about minimum wage or living wage. I want to quote from me quote for you again from uh, Roosevelt's New Nationalism speech. No man can be a good citizen unless he has a wage more than sufficient to cover the bare cost of living and hours of labor short enough so that after his day's work is done, he will have time and energy to bear his share in the management of the community to help in carrying the general load. A wage more than... um, So the part I want to zero in on is a wage more than sufficient to cover the bare cost of living. Right now, if you are a two-person household with only a single earner, right? So a single-parent household with one child making minimum wage, working 40 hours a week, you are below the poverty line in every state that ha- that is at the federal minimum wage. 
which is over 30 states. Yeah, something I don't understand is we've talked a little bit about algorithmic governance, mm-hmm. and this drives me crazy. Like, we're going to get together in 1994, and we're going to look at the data for 1994, and we're going to argue about a federal minimum wage, and then we're going to vote on it, and we're going to vote on a static number, right? We're going to vote on uh, $6.35 an hour or $8 an hour, or right now the big movement is for $15 an hour or whatever mm-hmm. it is. There will be a time in the future when $15 an hour is not a living wage Mm -hmm. and we will have to have this fight again. So my question is, if I were, if I were uh, a Senator or a representative, I would introduce a bill for a federal minimum wage that is pegged to a moving target of cost of living on a state by state basis, or maybe even a County by County basis. Oh, wow. Where you say it becomes algorithmic, right? You basically say, uh, this is a living wage in this County and that is based on, I mean, the, the threshold, the poverty line thresholds are already defined, right? Mm-hmm. And you basically peg that to cost of living on at least a state-by-state basis and at most a county-by-county basis. Mm-hmm. And you just say, like, if the cost of living goes up, the minimum wage goes up automatically, right? And maybe on a, on a yearly basis, right? There, there's a term in, um, in the federal government, COLA, cost of living adjustment, mm-hmm. that applies often to, like, Social Security benefits. Right. So a little bit of this is already done, but it's not on a state by state or county by county basis. And there's a wide range of variation Mm -hmm. from state to state or county to county. It's on a federal level and it's tied to, it's basically tied to inflation. So cost of living adjustments throughout the last 10 years have been less than, to my knowledge, less than the 3% a year because we've been living in a low inflation environment. Right. But that doesn't mean cost of living isn't going up, especially if you live in certain areas, if you're experiencing gentrification, if you're a senior citizen on a fixed income and you live in, bless your heart, if you live in, in <laughs> San Francisco, um, like God help you. So I have two things to say about this. One, uh, the state of Alaska has done this with the minimum wage. It's indexed as of this year. Starting this year, the minimum wage will go up commensurate to the consumer price index. That's great. Yeah. So right now it's at 980 and, you know, depending on how much the price of basic goods, right, food, gas, utilities goes up, then their minimum wage will go up as well. Also, I think it's important to say that if if we experience deflation, there's no reason cost of living shouldn't go down and therefore the minimum wage shouldn't go down. My grandmother is on a fixed income, right? She gets her, you know, 2 or 3% cost of living adjustment every year, but she lives in a city where the rent control outpaces right. her cost of living adjustment. So she's like, right now, like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I can no longer afford this apartment that I've been in for like 10 years, I think. Yeah. And that seem, those seem like if you live in a place that's rent controlled, that they should be tied. You should be, I don't know. They feel like they should be connected. Maybe I'm just overly, you know, affected by this because of my grandmother. But I, so anyway, I agree. It, it's crazy that... Politicians set a number, you know, and a lot of times the minimum wage is a target, right? So we're going to hit this number within the next five years, but you have no idea what the economy is going to do in five years. Do you think, do you think politicians, particularly conservative politicians, deliberately do that as a periodic control mechanism to say, if we did a federal minimum wage chained to certain uh, economic indices Mm -hmm. and closed the issue for the foreseeable future, we have no more opportunity or at least no more organic opportunity to re-enter the conversation and renegotiate it that's on more favorable favorable terms to us. It's like a built-in But wouldn't you want that? I don't understand why more 
elements of government aren't automatic. Yeah. Like the set it and forget it, right? It's like the, yeah. it's like every person in Congress should read Tim Ferriss's four hour work week, right? I haven't read this. Oh, it's great. You should check it out. Um, but like, what is he? The whole point is that um, we live in an age, this doesn't apply universally, but we live in an age where a lot of things can be automated and people don't automate them. Right. So for example, oh. uh, he talks about it in the context of business and he says, rather than uh, I'm really paraphrasing here, he, and he's written a lot more books and it's a very nuanced thing. And he's also a very popular podcaster, writer, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I don't mean to like boil his whole thing down into 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Tim Ferriss, if you ever listen to this. However, my takeaway, I read it a decade ago, but the four hour work week is, is basically, it's a case study of his own life where he started some internet company that I think if I remember correctly, sold some merchandise. And what he advocated for was instead of building up his fixed costs so that he had to make more and more and more money, mm-hmm. right? He instead creatively looked to areas where he could leverage the internet, he could leverage software, he could leverage automatic mechanisms. He could leverage assistant, like virtual assistants that lived in countries where the minimum wage was a lot lower. Right. So he had uh, a virtual assistant that was CC'd on all his emails that lived in Bangalore that spoke perfect English and that cost him 60 cents an an hour. I'm radically oversimplifying and I'm probably getting all these details wrong. But the idea was that you can escape the rat race and still live a great life and still do great things. If you start to think, um, about how you set up passive mechanisms for income and work and productivity. And so his thing was, instead of working a 40-hour week and trying to make more money every year, you should work to automate everything so that you still make as much money as you would in a 40-hour week, only working four hours a week. Wow. And it was like kind of a case study of one of his early startups um, where he did that and and then was able to kind of check in on his business for four hours a week and live in Thailand and surf and uh, write his book that became a New York Times bestseller. So. Mm-hmm. Super oversimplified, but I should also make a note to myself to probably cut that entire... No, I think it's fascinating. But I don't understand why government doesn't work more that way, right? I want to go back just because I didn't give the numbers because I try to avoid numbers because for me personally, listening to a podcast, they confuse me. But some people might want to know the numbers in terms of poverty for a family of two. But I'll actually increase it. When I was a kid, I lived in a three-person household, right, with my mom and my sister. There's only one person working, obviously, my mom. And currently, the poverty line for a family of three is $20,420. So it's a $20,000 income, basically. If my mom had a minimum wage job, she would make only $15,000. A full-time minimum wage job would make only $15,000 a year. That's $5,000 below the poverty line. And is that a federal poverty line? Or yeah, it's a federal, federal poverty right. line. Right, so you go to California or New York, and it's much more expensive. Right. So I feel like the opposite side of the aisle would argue, like, well, why don't you move? It's a good question. I mean, it's a valid question. It is a valid question. And there are a lot, there's a lot of data that shows that we have over time decreased the amount that we move in either within states or even interstate really? relocation. And that, that there would be greater, um, basically greater job growth. And if people, if we decrease the friction mm-hmm. um, of allowing people to move where the jobs are, that mm-hmm. we would see a more vibrant economy. And that, that has gone down, that measure has gone down over time, that, that our generation is the least likely to move to a new state than where we grew yeah. up. Yeah. I mean, the vast majority of Americans do not move, period. And that's, this is true for myself. I live, I currently live two miles from the hospital I was born in. We live very localized lives. And especially if you're living in poverty, 
it's very difficult, almost impossible to uproot your life and move, you know, especially if you're a single mother with two kids. Right. And the other thing I want to point out, this is unrelated, but kind of related, which is as more and more states pass these voter ID laws, you know, the argument on the other side of the aisle is like, well, how hard is it to get an ID? If you're working 40 hours a week just to just to be in poverty, you don't have the type of lifestyle where you can take a day off to go to the DMV and get an ID. And I feel like these kinds of laws don't take into consideration how diff- how yeah. absolutely difficult poverty is. And I and I'm not saying that I was in poverty, but like, you know, we didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up and it's hard. <laughs> yeah. It's also if you're not living in poverty, when you have two children, yeah, it's hard to get your pants on in the morning, let alone <laughs> go sit at the DMV and right. take them, take your kids with you or find a babysitter. Or, right. Right. Not to mention the fact that we live in L.A. where the DMV is 15, 20 minutes away. There are places in West Texas where the DMV is four hours away. Four right. hours and you don't have a car because you don't have a license. Right. That's 22. <sighs> yeah. I think we have a we have a there's a there's a newness bias that we have where the thing that's happening right now or the thing that happened in the last year is the thing we're focused on and we think that all of time is frozen. Right. This is the way that it's always been. Newness bias, B I A S. Yeah, or like I think there's a technical term. I think it's recency bias is like a co- actual cognitive uh-huh. bias that people have. But I think it applies to politics and history, right? Where people think this is the way it's always been. Yep. And it's interesting to think about. Where a lot of the a lot of the things we take for granted that have been radical in transforming our world, I mean, even things like the Securities and Exchange Commission, yeah. or a regulated 40-hour work week, or women's suffrage. Department right? of Labor is part of the platform. Exactly. How radical those things are. And mm-hmm. we just think they've always been there. Not only have they not always been there, this is where they came from, the progressive movement in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. And it's also interesting to me to think that, like— that there is this playbook that it's been 104 years since this election, 105 years since this election happened. Mm-hmm. And there's this playbook that we're not even through with yet. And I want to bounce some ideas off of you. So I've, I've been thinking and, and chatting with you, and I put together a little list of, we have a couple things that we still need to get through. And I feel pretty strongly about universal health care, mm-hmm. which is on Teddy Roosevelt's wish list. And I hope one day we can get true universal healthcare coverage. Mm-hmm. And then Teddy Roosevelt's ghost can come back, high five us, and it'll, we'll call it a day. Mm-hmm. I have a few things that I'd like to throw out as if, if Teddy Roosevelt were running today. And okay. he, were, he were a creature of our time. I love this. Roosevelt 2020. Roosevelt 2020. And he were a creature of our time and he were a progressive. What are some things that he might call for? And how likely is it that those things might be pushed through maybe soon or maybe over the next hundred years? Right. And I also kind of want quick reactions or discussions of whether or not you, whether or not you agree with them or disagree with them. Mm-hmm. The first one on my list is one that's been bouncing around for a long time. As a matter of fact, it was bouncing around very seriously in the 1960s mm-hmm. as a uh, reaction to the civil rights reforms of the Johnson administration. Mm-hmm. And it's a constitutional amendment enshrining the right to vote roosevelt 2020 roosevelt 2020 i'd be interested if roosevelt 2020 would advocate for a a constitutional amendment for a universal right to vote where any american citizen over the age of 18 is guaranteed a right to vote as a constitutional right even Uh, felons i think even felons i uh i used to be first of all of course of course every every, uh this is i'm surprised that this amendment hasn't already 
gained serious traction. Um, I used to be very opposed to a felon's right to vote. But then... May I ask why? Because it seems like you didn't hold up your end of the bargain. May I ask two counterpoint questions? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, first of all, that my... Uh, Position has shifted. Okay. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Well, I found out that my grandfather is a felon. Okay. <laughs> and I watched the 13th, uh, which is Ava DuVernay's um, documentary about the, you know, mass incarceration of black, particularly black men in this country and the history of it. And I realized that this is a, I don't know if it's a concerted effort, but it is a longstanding effort to disenfranchise people of color. Of course it is. I never thought about There's that. There's no doubt in my mind. And there is a there is an electoral upside to conservatives to disenfranchise millions of people, regardless of their color. Mm-hmm. Right? If you can find things that you don't do and that someone that politically disagrees with you does and then make that thing illegal. I'm going to push back on that. That's a very clever way of of winning elections. Everybody does the things that black men are in jail for doing. Absolutely. But the laws are enforced in certain communities disproportionately, right? Like the best argument I heard for stop and frisk is, why aren't they stopping and frisking Wall Street traders on a Friday afternoon? But that's the opposite argument that I would say, right? The, The answer is not to strip the civil rights of more people. No, I agree. It's to, it is to like strike the laws. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Right? Uh, and but, I think but a great, a great example of this is marijuana, right? I, a hundred percent. I am. Well, not a hundred percent, but I see where you're going. Go ahead. It, well, it is a hundred percent, right? Marijuana. I don't need to retread this. This is all very tired at this point in our culture, right? But you've got like two substances, cannabis and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Both of them are, have longstanding traditions of being imbibed by homo sapiens both have similar effects in many biomedical ways. Alcohol is far worse for mm-hmm. you biomedically. One is illegal. The other one's not. Mm-hmm. And over the last uh, little less than hundred years, since it's been federally regulated and controlled substance, hundreds of thousands or millions of people, mostly people of color mm-hmm. have been incarcerated and then permanently had their right to vote restricted mm-hmm. for smoking weed. Yeah. So I think it's, I, I agree. And I in, don't, in the argument, people also ob- often go to the maximal, right? Like, do you want rapists and murderers to be able to vote? No, of course not. And it's like, well, but here's the thing, right? If it impinges on the right to vote of other people that are not rapists and murderers, and if raping and murdering is such an edge case, right? You want to talk about regulations, right? Get rid of that regulation, right? You're regulating an edge case. I'd be curious to know the numbers of how many, we'll put it in the show notes. How many rapists and murderers are in jail right now? And how many... Drug offenders. Drug offenders are in jail. I don't know those answers. We can find them. Another point that's a a little more idealistic on my part is there's an ethical question of whether or not when you have, when a person has been convicted of a crime and they have served their sentence, there should be meaning to the concept of serving your sentence. And if you serve your sentence and then we're going to restrict your rights for the rest of your life, that doesn't sound to me like a sentence that ever ended. This is maybe a little Frank Capra of me, but if you've been tried by a jury of your peers and you've been found guilty of a crime and then you serve your sentence, I think you should walk out of that prison with all of your rights fully restored. Can you vote from prison? No, I don't think so. Which brings up, that's a solution right there, right? Yeah. 
it's a solution right there. If you've done something so terrible that you're serving your life in prison, then you can't vote from prison. That's an interesting question. I mean, I bet there are people that would advocate for being able to vote from prison. I think one big question is that you, you then have, if you have instances, like prisons are typically in very underpopulated areas for obvious logistics. Oh, reasons. right. Yeah. So you would have almost like artificially skewed congressional districts, but aren't they already populations? They're probably skewed by like the workforce that works to maintain it. No, I think that people who live, I think the prisoners are counted in the census in as living in that area. Interesting thing to look into. I don't know the answer to that. I feel like I read that recently. That's weird. Yeah. Very interesting. That's so just to keep track for the show, we currently have 27 amendments. The 28th amendment is the one that you're going to spearhead, which is the original first amendment. You're going to bring that back. Bring it back. The 29th amendment would be right to vote. Universal right to vote. Okay. Every American citizen over the age of 18 okay. shall not have his or her rights impinged to mm-hmm. cast a ballot for their representatives mm-hmm. in office. There are a couple like regulatory ones, right? Great. That I feel pretty strongly about. There are some family-oriented ones. So I think uh, this isn't a constitutional amendment, right? But it would be a platform. Um, universal pre-K. Mm-hmm. And uh, right to paid family leave. Okay. Um, Which we currently have in California, don't we? Right, but it's not federally recognized. Right. So I would I would strongly advocate for universal pre-K and let's, let's paid talk, family leave. Go ahead. Let's talk about universal pre-K. Mm-hmm. Because I know that, you know, the numbers in the 90s were that it was a huge predictor of um, future success, right? Mm-hmm. Kids who went to pre-K were going to get into, we're going to finish high school and get into good colleges. But is that a causal relationship? You could argue it a lot of ways. And like most things in economics, it's not super clear, but uh-huh. there are a variety. Like you could say it's, uh, it's not it causal, the- but it's, uh, it's correlative where correlative, correlative. I say correlative, but so it's Stephen not Wise causal co- correlative. correlative. He's from New York or New Jersey. Whatever, we'll cut that. Um, <laughs> so, like, you could say it could be correlative. You could say it would be correlative in that in the 90s, most most people that were in pre-K were there because their parents had the resources and to put were, them in pre-K. were super driven. You know, exactly. it's like the statistics about the parents who read the parenting books the parenting books don't make you better parents but it's the wanting to have that information that that shows that you're already a better than average parent absolutely and now that we're making pre-k universal or mandatory are we taking the edge off i'm just i don't know i'm not taking the edge off of what Uh, the benefit i think if there's any net benefit whatsoever that if it's not as big of a benefit i still think that it's well, this is a costly benefit. I think it also pay, it, it plays into the paid family leave thing, right? Particularly for low-income parents, having an extra year of covered childcare mm-hmm. and education is a really important service, right? That's true. That's one extra year that you don't have to have a, a babysitter or a nanny or daycare for your child. Right. But another big one, too, there was uh, on Vox's The Weeds podcast, they were talking the other day about uh, a really unintended benefit of universal pre-K. And it's that children that are in, that are in pre-K are often cor- they're correctly diagnosed earlier mm. for corrective things such as vision problems and asthma. And when you're a four-year-old kid and you're at that developmentally critical right. age and you can't see at a distance and your reading ability 
and that trajectory is impinged, right. that can have huge lifelong effects. So even just getting kids into the system so that they have the access to these basic corrective healthcare, hygiene, et cetera, nutrition, let alone the much more nebulous benefits of being able to socialize with large groups of your peers at an earlier age and being more socially acclimated. All right. I, I feel pretty strongly. Okay, I'm convinced. Um, Paid pay- family leave. So what would you, I mean, or what would Roosevelt in three years push for? Because right now in California, we have 12 weeks. Yeah, and it's bullshit. <laughs> um, so again, this is like most things, like most things in life, I'd like to look to empirical data uh-huh. for this stuff. And the the benefits of, the benefits of pair bonding, the benefits of... Um, access to basically the availability of a parent to an infant is is such a big it, it determines so much about so many things not only the future you know emotional adjustment of that child but even things like sudden infant death syndrome is decreased when parents are spending more time with uh, newborn babies really um, yeah as a matter of fact there are significant statistically significant so there are significant decreases in sudden infant death syndrome when the infant is sleeping in the same bedroom as the parents mm-hmm. in the first six to 12 months of life. Mm-hmm. And there's a correlation between working parents placing their children in room, other rooms right. so that they can sleep so that they can go to work the next day. Oh, wow. Right. Also, the benefits of breastfeeding, which right. is a very sensitive topic, and I don't want to advocate one way or the other for it, but if... If a mother is able to breastfeed a child, and there's a and lot, chooses goes, to, yeah, there's a lot that goes into that. There's a lot of physiological stuff, medical stuff, availability stuff, time management, scheduling, etc. Roosevelt 2020 would advocate for 12 months split between parents. So either one parent taking a full 12 months paid, or each parent taking six months. Five states currently have paid family leave. California is one of them. California, Rhode Island state of Washington, New Jersey, and New York. And in those five states, it's paid by an insurance fund, just like unemployment. And in the District of Columbia, it's paid by the employer. Which do you think Roosevelt would advocate for? I don't think the burden should be borne by employers. Mm-hmm. I, I would advocate for a special withholding on everyone's income taxes. Yeah. Because if you think about it, the way I look at it is, and, and full disclosure, I'm a parent of two young children, mm-hmm. so I have my biases, but I don't think it would be a, a medically or anthropologically radical thing for me to say that without children, civilization ends, <laughs> and therefore we should incentivize not only within limits, we should incentivize people to have children and then empower them to raise those children as healthily as possible. Mm -hmm. It is in all of society's interest to do that. Mm -hmm. And if you think about things like um, people that choose to remain childless, which is fine. If you think about all of the economics of even things like social programs, I mean, think about the economics of retirement, like social security benefits and particularly Medicare, right? Where you basically have universal health care for senior citizens. Right. A lot of that is subsidized by a younger workforce. Right. So theoretically, if you remain childless and then lived your life and then retired and then collected 10, 20, 30, or in the age of hip young um, right. centenarians, 50, 60 years of benefits, medical and, and, um, basic income benefits, 
those are being subsidized by your peers that are senior citizens that chose to have one, two, three, four children. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's not subsidized by the peers. It's subsidized by the children of your peers. Exactly. Yeah. I also think that there is um, uh, something that would support it coming out of, like, being an income tax or coming out of a payroll kind of thing is also the fact that men ha- men currently have an economic advantage, have a biological economic advantage. Yes. And that maybe does not entirely account for wage disparity between men and women in the mm-hmm. American workforce, but is certainly probably a contributing factor. It is. And something that, I mean, I don't think that we, I don't think it's government's place to get into kind of social engineering, but a demographic challenge that the United States has is that people are waiting longer to have kids. And a big part of that is the financial liability, right? The, Absolutely. The woman's going to have to take a year off from her career. Even if she gets to keep her job or she stays at her job, she's missing a year of advancement. And something like this, while it certainly can't correct that, it will take away some of those disincentives, so allowing people to have children earlier, which gives us a stronger you know, kind of population Absolutely. in the long run. Absolutely. And I think something, uh, the United States of America has been able to band-aid a decreasing fertility rate for the last couple of decades with immigration. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that in the next 50 years, everywhere is going to experience a fertility slowdown. Right. So we're not, there aren't going to be as many immigrants. I think the America of 10 or 20 years from now is going to be in a lot of ways, diametrically opposite to the way it is today, where we're going to be beg- we're going to be paying immigrants to come to the United States, right? right? We're going to be paying uh, Indian or Pakistani or South African or Brazilian PhD candidates, right? We're going to be paying for their educations and then giving them citizenship because we need them. We need them, yeah. And in addition to programs like that, we're going to need to incentivize people to have children, absolutely. Otherwise. We run into a population death spiral, and that causes a ton of negative, a ton of nasty economic things to happen. I want to throw a couple weird ones at you that I think you might disagree with, just to get okay. your reaction. Right to data. Uh, go on. I would encompass in a right di- a right to data that any data generated by any individual uh-huh. it becomes automatically their property. So, for example, uh, any. Uh, any image you upload to Facebook, any tweet that you send, any genetic sequencing of your genome is all automatically your intellectual property and not the intellectual property of the company that facilitated the generation of that data. Mm-hmm. Two, I would also encompass in that the right to access the internet, the same way that you have a right to access a public library, the right to access the internet and potentially subsidies. How is that not? Sub- subsidies. And alongside that would be potentially federally... Uh, implemented broadband Mm -hmm. such that if you live in a rural area, you have the right to a baseline broadband speed and that for free. And that if you want to pay for more, you can get faster internet, but that everyone is guaranteed a baseline. That's the new interstate project. Oh, absolutely. It's the new interstate highway system. Yeah. And I'm down with all that hand in hand with this. This is really radical. Oh boy. Right to free energy. What? The right to free energy. Yeah, you say it again doesn't make it make more sense for me. Specifically, the right to free electricity. What? These, so these last two, you're really stepping on business. Oh, absolutely. Right to data. But you, you could say that I can universal, universal public elementary school deprives private elementary schools billions, if not trillions of dollars of economic activity every year if there was no public school system. Yeah, but there... But, but there are 
for-profit sure. utility companies. There will be for-profit ut- There were for-profit schools before the public school system was established. And there will be for-profit the, utility companies. There were privately funded schools, but it's not like, you know, the owner the owner of Harvard was like swimming in money like Scrooge McDuck. And regardless, the I don't see how I don't see what that gets you. First of all, and that let is me, a let me, huge uh, paradigm shift, radical paradigm shift. L- let me throw a couple things at you. Okay. Okay. Is it morally right for a seventy-four-year-old woman that lives in rural Vermont to freeze to death in the winter because she can't afford to buy heating oil? Is it morally right for a six-year-old child of impoverished parents to live in a household where they have to turn the lights out at night and that kid can't read at night? Is it morally right to restrict a homeless or jobless person who cannot afford to, this ties both of the right to data and the right to energy, um, that cannot afford either an electrical bill or an internet bill to, that's, uh, is it morally right to slam the door of opportunity on them because every job today is found online, every, every resume is sent as a PDF, every, that digital literacy is the new Digital literacy is the new literal literacy. Is that like what kind of a moral framework is that? So I think that if I think that if the right to energy were a guaranteed human right, that one could calculate the baseline livelihood, right? You have the right to water, don't you? Yeah, but there's a this is this is very tricky for me and I on the surface do not agree with it. Okay. I think first of all there are currently welfare programs in many states providing help paying your heat heating bill, paying your, you know, water bill or whatever. So if that's the kind of thing that you're talking about, right? Like we're going to guarantee, you know, let's even say that you in in housing projects, I know that housing projects are municipally run, not state run. Well there are state run housing projects that there will give free or reduced cost electricity or there will give free or reduced cost broadband. I'm all for that. I'm not for a right to free energy because that is also, I think, going to disproportionately benefit companies who don't need my help paying their electricity bill. Wouldn't that incentivize the electrification of everything? And wouldn't it accelerate our move away from fossil fuels? Would it? I think it would. I I, I envision, uh, so this is... I envision Teddy well, Roosevelt. First of all, we're already ambitions. moving away from fossil fuels, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. You know, this would just coal, accelerate. I think it. you posted the coal stat. Yeah. 50,000 people work in coal this year. 51,000 solar jobs were added right. last year. Were added. Yeah. So we're already moving away from it without free electricity. You're absolutely right. I just think um, even in a world where there, even in a world where there is no fossil fuels, I believe that it is a human right in our modern world to have electricity and data. Okay. So right to vote. Uh, as the follow-up, once we have universal health care, the uh, right to universal mental health care. Yeah, well, I think to me that's got to be part of universal health care. The right to clean air, water, and food. Yeah. Human right. Uh, universal drug decriminalization. Y- what do you mean universal? Universal drug decriminalization. Meaning that if you are an addict or just a casual user of any drug that it is no longer a crime for you to possess or ingest that drug. 
I do not think this is what Jason Kander had in mind. <laughs> I think uh, I think you can still make the sale of drugs illegal, but I think to say that the your average heroin abuser, like what they really need is to be arrested and thrown in prison versus they need mental health care. Well, yeah, treatment versus incarceration. Yeah. I mean, we just talked about those hundreds of thousands, if not millions of men and women, mostly people of color that have been incarcerated for the possession or use of drugs. No, but we were talking about the possession or use of marijuana. Right. Which is a very different drug than heroin. I agree that heroin is different than marijuana. Right. I agree that the medical, psychological, and social ills that go along with heroin are much more extreme than with marijuana. Uh Uh-huh. But I do not believe that the possession or use of, of heroin should be grounds for your incarceration. Wow. I don't agree. I think... Um, or rather, I agree that you should not be in prison, especially if it's your first offense, you should be in treatment. I agree with that, but I believe it should be a crime. To possess or ingest drugs. Yeah. See, to me, it goes back to the, are we overregulating or not? Right? Of all of the possible chemical compounds in the whole wide world that do any number of things to your body, some of which are socially productive and some of which are medically dangerous. Mm-hmm. Are we going to go one by one and say, you deserve seven years in prison for this variant of this molecule, but only one for this other? <laughs> You're such a hippie. No. What do you, what do you mean I'm such a hippie? Variant of crack- this molecule there? I mean, yeah, crack, crack and cocaine. cocaine. Yeah, that's an arbitrary distinction. These are things that it helps nobody by taking small-time users and addicts. For, first of all, Nobody's addicted to psilocybin mushrooms or right. nobody's like out, you know. Yeah, Jones in. Jones in for some Molly uh, right. on the weekend. So clearly we can classify these into highly f- mm-hmm. uh, physiologically addicting drugs and, and otherwise. But, you know, a small time, either a recreational user or an addict, I think, I mean, it com- to me it comes down to, it comes down to right of bodily autonomy. It comes down to right to privacy. This is kind of a little bit where my libertarian side comes out. And I say that um, it's fine if the federal government wants to make it a crime to ship 50 tons of heroin across the U.S. border and Mm -hmm. arrest the people that are selling it. Mm -hmm. Fine. That I'm fine with. But the person that buys uh, a small quantity of it and walks down the street because they've got a real problem, I think they need a lot of things from their society other than arrest and incarceration. Okay, but what you're doing is marginalizing a segment of the marketplace, which is a part of the problem with with mass incarceration presently, right? Which is that the person who owns a liquor store has built a good life for him and his family. The person who's on the corner selling pot is, is about to be thrown in jail. So you're determining which sales are legal and which sales are illegal, despite the fact that the consumers have demanded a product. Yeah. So you cannot... So wait, what's your point? You cannot make half of the transaction illegal and not the other half. Sure you can. You can say that coffee in in any quantity, any reasonable quantity, you can never overdose and die from it, right? Mm-hmm. We're not going to control the sale of coffee. You can mm-hmm. buy a coffee if you're a felon. You can buy a coffee right. if you're 16 years old, whatever, right? The same would go for marijuana, right? Nobody's mm-hmm. overdosed on marijuana. You could say that heroin, mm-hmm. like really strong cough medicine, mm-hmm. can't you can overdose on it. 
it should be a controlled substance because it's it's like it's uh, medically dangerous, Mm -hmm. right? And you can establish a system whereby it's a controlled substance, and it's not very different from today, right? And potentially set up a system uh, a system whereby if one is like this is another radical thing, but like there are a number of countries with program. First of all, this has been tried before. Like Portugal's decriminalized all drugs many years ago, and it has been a resounding success. Mm -hmm. Um, We're not Portugal. There are a lot of differences between us. Don't get me wrong. However, like I'm also an advocate for programs whereby if you are a heroin addict, you should be able to go get that heroin at a clinic in in a way where you're not. Uh, you're being monitored. So you're not overdosing and dying. You're not using needles that lead to you contracting diseases like HIV and that you're not giving your money to a drug dealer. Right. That would not be at Rite Aid, right? Cause it's mm-hmm. a controlled substance and you don't want to give people heroin. I guess a lot of big pharma companies would beg to differ with you, right. but you, I think would want to control that substance and the use of that substance. But I don't see anything wrong with that. Okay. So maybe you're right. Maybe, the, maybe you, Teddy Roosevelt 2020 is is right on this and that's a long-term goal but I have I have a lot of difficulty kind of getting there but maybe the in-between that I will say needs to happen is reframing the debate about drugs as to a public health debate right these people who are addicted to drugs need to be treated for their addiction and the criminalization of an entire enterprise of a, you know, I don't know, billion dollar enterprise or whatever it's worth in the United States needs to be brought out of the shadows. And those people need to be brought into the mainstream economy in some way. I, I'm, I can understand that more than I can, like, you know, there's a McDonald's for heroin. I, I never said that there's a McDonald's. Well, I mean, I'm, and I dis- I'm no, being intentionally glib, and I'm but not it's being, like... I'm not offended. I'm but, just saying, I'm, I'm responding to you that But you're I saying you can't go to Rite Aid, but there's going to be another place that you can go to. Yeah. I mean, I, that's tough for me to buy. I mean, not to buy heroin. It's I tough mean, for me to accept. As, as culturally naive as this is, right, one could make a very strong case that that's the way alcohol should be controlled. But it's not for very clear cultural, mm-hmm. longstanding cultural reasons. But it probably, like, if we discovered alcohol tomorrow, yeah, that's scientists it. would say this is a dangerous substance. Yeah. It's highly addictive. It causes long-term organ damage and a decrease in people's ability to make good decisions. Right. Increases domestic violence, et cetera. Don't, it's not, it's a control, it's a level one controlled substance. Right. But it's not because there are um, Grecian urns that have people drinking alcohol on them. And right. And then doing stupid stuff on the other side of exactly. the earth. The last couple ones uh, that I'm a little more on the fence about, but I th- they have kind of movements behind them. I wanted to get your reaction on them. Uh, free college education. Yeah. You're in support? No. Do you want to talk about why? Or should we save that for another? I, I believe in debt-free college. I don't believe in free college. What is debt? Talk to me about that. Basically, what is, What's in, the difference? In making it affordable for all people. I don't think that... I think that if you're a, a poor, a kid from a poor neighborhood, there's hopefully ways for you to get to college and not go massively into debt. I think that right now the middle class doesn't have those same opportunities and it's forcing, you know, I remember 18-year-old Nick Daze, it's forcing 18-year-old, kids like 18-year-old Nick to go into extreme debt. Well, I don't want to characterize your debt as extreme, but to go into, take on a lot of debt in order to get through college, which society tells us is a thing you need to do to have any chance. Right. 
I graduated college with over $120,000 of student loan debt. Yeah. And then I immediately started a startup company and <laughs> made no money for several years. So, yeah, maybe not. But I... I wouldn't, just t- worry I wouldn't about take it back. I worry about abuses to the system if everybody gets to go to college for free. Would you do something like um, you go to college, there's the same pay structure, or the same tuition structure, you take out loans, you're obligated to pay a maximum of like a maximum percentage of your annual income. Right. You're obligated to pay. And then what if there's like an expiration date for it, right? Like what if like oh. what if there's like a 20 year expiration? So like, right? yeah, if you. So if you. Or Mark Zuckerberg, right? right? You, you're paying that shit off in spades. Mm-hmm. If you spend 10 years unemployed and another 10 years working minimum wage, the system only gets a fraction. It's almost like you're building the investment incentive into mm-hmm. the student loan providers in your future success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One question I have is like, why the service provider and the financier structure is separate. Like theoretically the universities should have a vested interest in your future success. But when you go to a university and you take a student loan out with Navient or Sally May right. or SoFi or whoever, and then the university has the university gets their money, right? right? They have, they don't, as far as the university, I mean, this is probably not true. This is definitely not true in a gross over character, like oversimplification, right? But if you were to do four years of college, get your degree, and then drop dead six months later, the university has been, fi- they're financially whole. Right. Right. That may not be great for like alumni right. actuarial table stats, but like, and obviously universities want their alumni to do well because those people are then going to go donate money to their schools in the future. Mm-hmm. However, it seems like we've really disambiguated the incentive structure. Like we've really messed up the incentive structure. And if universities are going to get any more cost effective and any more competitive, that they're going to have to have more skin in the game on their return on investment of student loans. You know, that's a really good way to reorganize the structure, the restructure, the transaction between the student, the bank and the university. I'm not sure if I think that you would have to rewrite certain laws, which Teddy Roosevelt is certainly the man to do it. So to, I think you would have to rewrite certain laws so that the university can get into the money game, which is a dangerous thing to do. You could also do something where this would be another radical thing. Um, Another way you could play with the economics of this is not to give it a 20 year expiration date. You could also do something whereby you regulate the interest on a student loan. Mm -hmm. Like if, if you said, if you said that, Student loan interest rates are pegged to the Fed interest rate, mm-hmm. right? So if federal, if the Fed interest rate is zero point seven five percent, you can take out a hundred thousand dollar loan. The problem with that, though, is that in periods of historically low interest rates, like we have now, it would be that would be an incentive for the universities to increase tuitions, right? And it would be an incentive for people to borrow more money, right? Because it's yeah, the federal interest rate. I don't think is the right thing to peg it to. Right. But you might be right. I mean, there's there are certainly ways to renegotiate the system. What's the next one? Term limits on all offices, including no including way judges and Supreme Court judges. Okay, Supreme Court judges. I'm more I'm willing to talk about because I saw a stat again. You may have posted it that before 1975. Yeah, the average term for a Supreme Court justice was 15 years, mm-hmm. and now it's 30. Mm, 25, I think the stat was. Regardless, that's long. That's a long time. And it's only going to get longer. It also, I because think... Because ju- justices, are, I feel like, are being nominated at younger and younger ages. Yeah, absolutely they are. Because the president wants to have a lasting impact on the court. So, like, 
How old was Roberts when he was Early 50s. Confirmed. If I remember correctly, he was uh, 54 sure? years old, if I remember correctly. All right. He was no older than 54. That's still a fairly still young. young guy. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he was in his I late 40s. I thought he 40s. was in his... I thought he was in his late uh, 40s. I don't think he was in his 40s. Uh, let's look it up. Instant fact check. He was born in 1955. He's, a, he, ju- he's a junior. And he was, he was nominated in 2005, so yeah. he's 50. Yeah. All right. It's pretty young. Yeah. Um, Elena Kagan was under 50. Obviously, Neil Gorsuch is under 50. He, no, he's not. He's 48 years old. What? Neil Gorsuch, our newest Supreme Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, uh-huh. is 48 years old. I thought he was in Obama's class at Harvard. I look. I could. I could totally be wrong. Neil Gorsuch turns 50 this summer. Oh, okay. So he's 49. All right, last one. Okay. The right to robot orgies. <laughs> I got nothing else. Um, that was a bit of a monster of an episode. I love it. I'm going to edit the shit out of it. Thank you very much for listening to Robot F. Kennedy. Please follow us on Twitter at Robot F. Kennedy. If you like our podcast, go to iTunes and rate us. Telling a friend is the best way that we can spread this podcast. So uh, please share it with a friend. And thank you very much for listening. Robot out. Robot <laughs> out.